0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, everybody. It is morning of December the 10th, and we're crawling towards, as we crawl towards the end of this fateful, iconic year, um, it's becoming increasingly clear what kind of foreign policy team the Biden administration is going to have. Uh, Yesterday, Biden announced um, uh, Lloyd Austin as his uh, defense secretary. He tweeted it in his own peculiarly Biden-esque on Twitter fashion. And on Twitter, he announced about American foreign policy. He said, uh, quoting Biden, I don't know if he actually wrote this, I've long said that America leads not by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. so the question, of course, is what kind of foreign policy is America going to have in a Biden administration? What is the new role, the post-Trump war, role of of America in the world today? We had Steve Cole uh, on the show last week, the head of um, the head of Columbia University's journalism school, uh, to talk about uh, his vision of America's role in in, in the world, and. Another, alongside Cole, another very distinguished luminary of the American liberal foreign policy establishment is Peter Beinart. He, uh, he wrote a, a really interesting piece in the New York Times uh, last week, uh, an op-ed arguing um, that Biden wants, to, wants America to lead the world, but it shouldn't. Uh, Peter Beinart, uh, what did you mean by that? Op-Ed. Is America's role in the world finished as this beacon of freedom, this little city on the hill?
1: So I think America has a lot to contribute to the world to partner with other countries in solving major global threats like climate change and you know pandemics. But the reason I don't like this phrase leadership that gets thrown around, I think almost without much thought behind it um by the Biden team and 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 many others is first of all, it I think it assumes a, a power dynamic that no longer exists in the world. It's rooted in this this story about American leadership that begins with World War II. Um, and, ni- and, and, and in 1945, the United States was half of the world's gross domestic product. As late as the end of the Cold War, we were 25%. We're now 15%. China is bigger than us you know, by various metrics and the gap is going to widen. So for when Biden says we're gonna sit at the head of the table, I think that's based on a power dynamic that no longer really exists in the way it did. I don't think the rest of the world is necessarily inclined to believe the United States has the power to always sit at the head of the table. And it's also based on a notion of our kind of unique virtue that I think we uh, don't have the right to assert um, at this point. Uh, The United States has been a kind of wrecking ball for the principles of a world of an international order that is based on rules rather than simply sheer might during the trump administration and even before the trump administration we had done some really really damaging things to the very principles of a quote-unquote liberal rules-based international order that we claim to be leading and so i think that uh, we should be a little more humble right now and perhaps work for membership and partnership and solidarity before we assert leadership
0: Wow Peter that is going to upset a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment in in 2010 you wrote an interesting book the Icarus syndrome we all know of course the the, the metaphor the 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 uh, of, of Icarus in, in antiquity the the lesson of flying too close to the sun uh, do you still stick to the Icarus syndrome as a history of um, uh, of, of American mistakes in foreign policy, of trying to fly too close to the sun?
1: The book argued that there have been different moments in the history of American foreign policy where American uh, America's perceived successes have led to a moment of great hubris where we overestimated our power and our virtue and that and that, that has led to disaster and then people have tried, had to kind of pick up the pieces and try to come to a more, I think, humble and more humane understanding uh, of America's relationship with the world. The the, the the aftermath of Iraq has, I think, made it much harder for American presidents to deploy large numbers of ground troops in regime change operations around the world. But some of the deeper rethinking I don't think has really happened in the way I would have liked to see it. And again, I think this language of leadership itself re- reflects an unwillingness to actually look hard at the, re- at the sum of America's behavior rather than always falling back on certain kind of, kind of reassuring storylines, comforting storylines we have, which are based more in our self-conception about the way America uh, acts in the world than on the reality of how we actually have acted.
0: Peter, uh, a few. uh, This was. uh, This was. uh, I'm I'm honing in on your uh, essay in the Times. You say that America accounted for roughly half of the world's gross domestic product. Uh, It did. Now it only accounts for one seventh. Is the reality of America in the world one of just another power? Uh, Has the very shape of the international system changed over the last 25 or 50 years?
1: It certainly has changed. The United States is still by far the strongest military power, um, but our military power is no longer um, as dominant in East Asia as it was. China is not can't 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 challenge the United States as a global military power, but it certainly can challenge the United States in areas near China's. Border. Um, uh, in fact, you know, from what I've seen, you know, every time the US, What I've read, every time the U.S. military plays a war game over Taiwan, where the U.S. and China go to war over Taiwan, we lose. Um, um, and, but, but, even more important to that, the, I think that the major contest right now between the United States and China is less military than economic. And um, there are many, many countries around the world which are now more economically dependent on China than they are on the United States, and and so that the the, the power of China's economic power and it's uh, and its increasing technological power, I think, is the single biggest force which is changing the power dynamic in the United States. Uh, sorry, the, the power dynamic in the world in ways that um, uh, that I think a lot of American policymakers have not really fully taken account of.
0: We also had uh, another foreign policy expert written an interesting book, Charles Kupchan, on, on the show a few weeks ago. I'm sure you know him know. Uh, uh, as a way of, of, of somehow rehabilitating the idea of isolation, isolationism. <laughs> isolationism. Kupchan certainly isn't a hardcore isolationist, but he is suggesting that isolationism is a, is a credible alternative in American politics. Uh, foreign policy. Like you, he's very critical of American exceptionalism. Where do you stand on Kupchan's Chan's arguments? I don't know if you know his arguments about isolationism, but isolationism in general.
1: I mean, I think it, it depends on what one means by isolationism. The term gets thrown around a lot. Um, if If isolationism means that the United States does not um, try to contribute to global efforts to solve common problems. Then I, I'm against it because uh, we've clearly seen that it, issues like pandemic and climate change, which threaten people across the world, also threaten Americans. And you can't build a wall to wall the United States off of the from the effects of these things. Nor is it moral to assent to to, to disregard America's obligations for the way in which, for instance, our pumping of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere leads to devastation in other countries. But if what you mean by that is that the United States, uh, which is a nation which is blessed uh, with oceans separating us from our greatest adversaries and weak uh, neighbors to its north and south, has a much greater margin for military security than our foreign policy elites would often suggest, such that... Whatever moral issues they're involved, we don't need to see things that happen in in let's say, the Ukraine or the South China Sea as serious threats to America, to the safety and security of ordinary Americans. um and therefore we don't need to pursue the policies of kind of global same policies of global global hegemony that we have pursued in the past. then then I would agree with Charlie. yeah. Peter, have you changed your mind to some extent
0: over the last 20 years? Do you see yourself as an example, if not out of American isolationists, of someone who has lost confidence in the American role in the world? Of course, you wrote in, uh, in uh, I think it was uh, 20, uh, was it? Uh, uh, 2005. 2005 the good fight why liberals and only liberals can win the war and terror and make america great again now of course i don't know whether uh, donald trump stole your america great again you probably should sue him for that but um and i know the world has changed dramatically after yeah. the uh, after 9 11 but um would you write that book again today about war and why
1: liberals are the only ones who can win a war on terror no, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I mean, that book was um, it was written in a in a period, you know, as I was, my views were evolving in response to uh, the Iraq war in particular. Um, and uh, I think I mean, I can't speak for other people, but I um, I try to revise my views uh, as as events. Um, unfold and uh, and in some cases prove that my assumptions were right and in some cases presume, presume you know, prove that my assumptions and my ideas were, were very mistaken. And um, I, like I think some other people of my generation, kind of Gen X people, were very influenced when we were in early adulthood by the, the Gulf War in 1991 and America's military interventions in the Balkans in Bosnia in 95 and Kosovo in 1999, when it seemed like uh, America had stopped ethnic cleansing. We were regretful that the United States had not intervened in Rwanda during its genocide in 1994. And that led certainly me, and I think I'm not alone, but I can speak for myself, to after 9-11 have far too, be far too sanguine about um, the, about the role of American military force in the world, far too kind of optimi- naively optimistic about what it could achieve and, and not nearly aware enough about the very, very serious da- dangers that of, 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 of a kind of, of, of America, of something like a war on terror, not only for, uh, for other countries, but indeed for our own domestic liberty. And so it was a very long and, um, challenging process for me to rethink those views that that was really it was rethinking those views that were really the genesis in particular of the first book you mentioned the the icarus syndrome which is a book about hubris and i i wrote a book about hubris because i felt like i had been I had succumbed to hubris. um, And I wanted to look at other people in other moments in American history, particularly the thinkers who supported America's entrance into World War I and the thinkers who brought America into Vietnam, and try to look at how they reconstructed their view of the world after having been, uh, after being shatteringly wrong about something.
0: We had Margaret Macmillan, the great Canadian historian on the show uh, uh, last month, also talking about her new book, War, How Conflict Has Shaped Us. Clearly, the idea of war, intellectually at least, has shaped you. Would it be fair to say, it's it's all too easy, of course, to criticize Donald Trump on so many levels, but would it be fair to say that on one level, at least, he's kept America out of wars in his his administration, and it's more likely that Biden will somehow become embroiled in a war uh, over the next four years?
1: I think if you, um, if you look at the pattern of American history, what you see is that after costly disillusioning wars, the presidents who follow are very reluctant to send significant numbers of US ground troops into harm's way. And so they look for ways of accomplishing America's foreign policy goals in ways that appear less costly, either by bombing from the air or by sending lots of arms to America's allies. Um, uh, and that Donald Trump is in that tradition. Um, uh, Richard, this was the same thing really that Richard Nixon did, especially in his second term. He withdrew U.S. ground troops from Vietnam. He massively escalated bombing from the air. So yes, Donald Trump has has wanted to try to withdraw U.S. ground troops from a lot of places. In in some cases, I think that's been a, a good instinct, but it is also important to remember that he, and this is true in Afghanistan, for instance, he has substantially ramped up American bombing from the air because that is less costly to Americans, at least in, the, in a kind of direct way, and produces less political blowback. But it doesn't mean it's any less devastating to the people whose countries were actually bombing.
0: We also had uh, a couple of months ago the Princeton historian uh, Harold James on the show arguing that in some ways uh, the declining American empire is akin to the the Brezhnev years, the 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 uh, the, the gerontocracy in in, in the Soviet Union—is James's thesis? Does it hold any water, Peter?
1: I mean, I don't. I'm not a historian of, of the Soviet Union, so I don't. Well,
0: that's on the Soviet. I mean, you don't need to be a, a historian of the Soviet I mean, Union to I'm, talk about
1: decay and
0: decline.
1: I well, look. There's no question that America's relative power is in decline. Um, I think that the question is really. What kind of a, what kind of society are we going to be? Um, uh, we can be a country that has less relative power in the world and still be a, and, and still be a decent society uh, uh, for people for people to live in. I think the real I think I think the question is can we actually the pandemic has shown that in many ways we're not that society. We're a society that that can't meet its basic obligations to pe- keep its people safe and healthy um, and give them a dignified life. And that also our democratic system is is proven really fragile and threatened. Um, And I, I am afraid that the Biden administration will not have the capacity to really turn that around. Um, that I think some of their instincts are good. But um, I fear that with a likely Republican Senate and a very small Democratic majority in the House and a relatively hostile Supreme Court, they will not be able to make the, the, re- the kind of major structural changes that we really need. And I, there seems to me the very little evidence that Trumpism is going away, even if we're luckily enough to see the back of Donald Trump from the White House in January.
0: Well, the news then is bad, Peter, and uh, perhaps to deepen everyone's depression, let's shift to a discussion of the Middle East, which, uh, particularly on the, the Israel front, as one of your expertises, you're very well known as a thinker, um, sometimes challenging the orthodoxies of Zionism from a Jewish point of view. Uh, we had Kim Khatas, the uh, the very distinguished Lebanese journalist on the show earlier this week, talking about her new book, uh, Black wave um, in which she talks about the dominant Saudi Iranian Shia uh, Sunnis when well, not Shia Sunni struggle but the the role of America uh, in this she she describes it as um, she describes it as a kind of uh, and I'm not sure she meant in any way a Freudian way a fateful triangle between the United States Iran and and mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia um, and she asked and this is the old question in the middle east what happened to us is there a place in this triangle for israel should should it be in this in this image should it should it be united states slash israel in terms of this increasingly dysfunctional arrangement in the middle east
1: well i look israel is a major player in the middle east so israel in some form or another is going to be part of these power dynamics that exist i think what we see today is that Israel has grown, has a kind of de facto alliance with Saudi Arabia, um, uh, both of which are pushing very hard um, uh, to, to prevent the resurgence of Iranian power. And I, I think that this, the roots of this go back to some degree to, the, to America's invasion of Iraq. Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni leader in a majority Shia country, was a bulwark against Shia, against Iranian power. When he was taken out and and Iraq therefore then had a government that was much closer to Iran, um, that really, uh, that increased Iranian power and really freaked out both the Saudis and the Israelis. And they have essentially both tried to employ the United States in various ways to try to kneecap Iran at every turn. And I, I, I think the consequences of this have been very, very harmful. I think the consequences of this Cold War have been devastating for countries like Yemen and Syria. Um, and I, I think there is still a possibility that they could lead us to a war in Iran itself. And we've seen the way that both Saudi and, and the United Arab Emirates and, and the Israeli government have, um, have made it much, much harder for the United States to pursue, I think, thoughtful nuclear diplomacy with Iran and ultimately to have a working relationship with Iran. Iran is a brutal, nasty, authoritarian regime. You know what? so are most of their neighbors. Um, so is the Saudis, so are the Emiratis, so are the Turks. Um, uh, uh, Israel's, Israel's own behavior in Gaza and the West Bank is pretty brutal. And so it seems to me the United States, the best position of the United States would be to have a working relationship with all of these regimes, but not to be beholden to any of them. And that is something that right now we've um, uh, does, isn't happening. Peter, in 2012,
0: you wrote another book, The Crisis of Zionism. Uh, it's been eight years since that book. I assume the crisis of Zionism it remains a crisis. You wrote a really controversial piece uh, recently about a Jewish case for equality in Israel-Palestine. Uh, it seems as if increasingly you're becoming a pessimistic realist on 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 the Israel front. What's going on? Why 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 did you write this piece?
1: Well. Um... It seems to me that there's a fundamental moral problem with the fact that there are millions of Palestinians who live under the control of the Israeli government, but are not are not citizens of Israel and are barred from being citizens of Israel because they're Palestinians and not Jews. This is a colonial situation, right? The essence of colonialism is to be the subject of a regime that you cannot become a citizen of. Um, for many, many years, my entire adult life, I believe that the way to solve this problem would be for Palestinians to have a state of their own. Therefore, there could be a state devoted to Jewish, um uh safety in the in the in the in a post-holocaust world a state that would also i hoped, move closer and closer towards genuine liberal democracy and there would also be a state where palestinians could be citizens and re- realize their natural national aspirations and hopefully live in a in a liberal democracy israeli settlement policy unfortunately uh, above all has i think now made that prospect virtually impossible and i think it's brought us to the point i argue in that piece where we need to contemplate the idea not of partition, but of integration of Jews and Palestinians living side by side in safety and dignity in one equal country. Um, this is a very controversial view, a, a minority view inside the American Jewish community and also outside the Israeli Jewish community. But I feel like it's something that more people are going to have to reckon with given the realities on the ground. And I made, it, made an argument for, for beginning this conversation. So not right. beginning it. I mean, others had others had come up with it, had 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 begun it too. But for I entered into this conversation.
0: Yeah, and you're doing the rounds here. You are on on Zach- Zachariah on on CNN. If the two state solution is dead, what comes next? How do we connect the the, um, the decline of American power, perhaps the failure of its foreign policy over the last fifty years in Israel? To what extent can the Israel, maybe it's a catastrophe, maybe it's a failure, the crisis of Zionism, the failure of Zionism, whatever words you use. To what extent is America's Israel policy exhibit number one when it comes to to the, um, the failure, the weakness of American foreign policy? When historians write, foreign policy historians write, the history of late 20th, early 21st century American foreign policy, will Israel rank large in its failures?
1: Um, there have been many American failures, but I, I, I think the United States has, has enabled Israeli behavior that has been um, uh, terrible for Palestinians in terms of their basic rights, but ultimately, I think, poses an existential threat to Israel's existence as a Jewish state. Um, Israel was, Zio- Zionism was created as an ethos of settling the land, um, uh, of Jews essentially taking uh, creating what's called what are called facts on the ground and building a state around that, that process. That After 1967, Israel conquered the West Bank. That process began to start in the West Bank. Um, but the West Bank is a territory where the vast majority of people are Palestinian, not Jewish, and Israel was never going to make those people citizens. So this is a fundamentally undemocratic project. And... Um, uh, and the, if the United States would have been, it would have been in Israel's interest, I believe, for, for, for American, American leaders, and America is Israel's largest ally and benefactor, we give them $3 billion in military aid a year, to say, no, we, are, we are, will not support this enterprise. We will not fund you uh, stealing land from Palestinians and building settlements in the West Bank um, and creating this one-state reality. And we will pressure you to, to, to support a genuine, viable, sovereign Palestinian state. The United, the United America's leaders have not done that for a variety of reasons, among them American domestic politics. And so the result is where we are now, which is I think is the de facto one state that exists. And I would be surprised if over the next five, 10 years, we didn't see more and more Palestinians and more and more other people around the world basically saying, okay, you've got one country here, everyone should be treated equally.
0: So basically, what you're saying is that America's problem of, of thinking itself exceptional when it isn't is also Israel's problem.
1: Um, one could put it that way, or another way I would put it is that to say that um, um, uh, America, in the name of uh, being an ally and a friend to Israel, has enabled Israeli behavior that I think is not only immoral, but I actually think is, a, is an existential threat to the existence of Israel as a Jewish state.
0: Um, Peter, you, you've had a very distinguished career as a journalist. You edited the New Republic. You've written for all the big publications. You started a, a, a Substack page, which uh, I've certainly joined, and I, I strongly encourage our our readers to join. You're not alone. Andrew Sullivan, many other leading Glenn Greenwald, many other leading journalists have left their traditional publications and embraced the Substack. Uh, entrepreneurial model. What does that tell you? Do you think more broadly about the future of journalism, which also, like America and Israel, is in crisis in the United States?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, my situation is a little bit different than than Andrew Sullivan or Glenn Greenwald, and then I'm I'm still very happily the editor at large of Jewish Currents, which is a progressive Jewish publication that I hope. Does that pay the bills now, or is that a, a hobby? Sorry. Does that pay the bills or is that more of a hobby? I mean it doesn't alone pay the bills but it's a you know it's a it's something that I devote a lot of time to I write for them a lot I help them think through their editorial strategy I'm very involved in the publication and I write a monthly column for the New York Times. So I um it, it, this is not this is not my my full-time gig um but it is something that I I kind of added to the repertoire partly because I I um I used to when I was at the Atlantic which I was up until uh, October I was writing once a week and now i'm only writing once a month for the time so i have a little bit more time on my hands um uh, but i i and i also like the the style that substack uh provides which is you know, more freewheeling, more uh, maybe in some ways more kind of intimate uh, and personal, and um, than um, than the kind of somewhat more formal, structured kind of writing I do for Jewish Currents and the New York Times. So I think it's it's good that these are, you know, as you've rightly said, you know, many many publications have been de- deeply destabilized and even even destroyed by um, by the very difficult economics of the web for for journalism. And I think it's great that there are now new. Options that are available, so that you know, good writers can make a living, and that and that people who like good writing can can find it.
0: Everyone, of course, as I said, should uh, certainly uh, should certainly subscribe to Peter's new page on Substack. They also need to read his monthly column in the New York Times, as well as perhaps to revisit some of these books. Which uh, I'm not sure if they've aged well or or, or badly. But some better than others. Into yeah. To read it in retrospect especially the good fight and the icarus syndrome uh peter you are in uh, new york at the moment in these strange times in addition to your books and your articles and your substack page what else should people be reading in these strange times as as
1: 2020 thankfully grounds to an end so I recently read a book that I really loved um, uh, called, it's called How to Hide an Empire. It's by a professor at Northwestern named Daniel Immerwar. And um, I think it's a it's a really brilliant exercise in looking at the parts of American history and American foreign policy that, that are kind of not really part of the main narrative. It, the book is a history of America's territory. So these are areas that America took control of, but never made states. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, Puerto Rico is is such, a, is such an area. The Philippines for many, many decades was, places like Guam, American Samoa. And in this, if you look at American history through the eyes of America's experience with these places, in some ways it kind of invert, it changes the, the way the story looks in a lot of really fascinating ways. And it really raises some very profound questions that I think still remain uh, for the United States, you know, because one of the reasons, of course, that the United States was not willing to make places like Puerto Rico and uh, and the Philippines states was because they were not defined as white, uh, or, or and, you know, um, and and given that one of the I think fundamental challenges now in American in American challenging American democracy is whether we can genuinely be a multiracial democracy uh, in the face of a Republican party that I think increasingly wants to undermine American democracy to maintain white supremacy. Looking at that question through the lens of our experiences in places like Puerto Rico and the Philippines is very illuminating. And Imar is also a terrific writer. Well, that will be
0: the subject of another show, our multiracial or the failure of American multiracial democracy. Peter Beinhart, an honor as always. And I I look forward to having you on the show in the not too distant future. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Keynote hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure and the team at Lit Hub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.